We need to adopt the high paid consultant mindset or the doctor's mindset or the lawyer's mindset. If you walk into a doctor's office, the doctor doesn't say, thank you so much for choosing me. I'm so grateful for your custom. I think it would be a great opportunity if we get to know each other and can I take you for lunch? He says, what seems to be the problem? Drop your pants, <laughs> bend over. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and we respect the authority and we go to him and it doesn't matter whether you're selling Mars bars or nuclear submarines. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, where we delve into the stories of successful entrepreneurs so you can discover what's possible. Today's guest is Matthew Kimberly. Hello, this is Yarrow, and welcome to an Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Today, I have a guest who I recently connected with at a conference in London, and we're going to continue the London theme with the accents here. Uh, and it was a Chris Docker event, and my guest was speaking on the topic of sales, which was, in fact, a fantastic presentation on sales. Uh, we have to talk a bit about that. I'd love to uh, dive into how to sell an apple. That was what uh, my guest topic was. But it wasn't just about selling. There was a lot of uh, personal exploration of uh, different aspects of his life. And I found it so interesting, but I was also curious to learn more. So that's why I had to invite Matthew Kimberly onto the podcast to find out more about this um, secret service background that he has uh, <laughs> lived. So Matthew, <laughs> hello. Thanks for having me, Yara. A huge pleasure to be here. And I've been, when I say I've been following you online for years and years and years, um, probably, you know, you, you were one of the first names that I started to recognize when I discovered that there was a, a world that didn't require desks out there. Which actually makes me curious uh, what world you were in then if it wasn't the online world. So, I mean, if you don't mind, I I'd love to. First of all, let's just briefly summarize because I was asking you this before the podcast because I don't really know much about your background besides the fact that you speak and travel a lot and teach the world how to sell stuff and you're very good at that. But you've obviously lived a life before that and I'd love to know more about that. But uh, in summary, why should we care about your skills, Matthew? <laughs> Well, I think they're important skills and whether you choose to learn from me or somebody else and you know my colleagues and competitors which is a nasty word but colleagues are equally if not more competent to teach you but I think learning how to sell is the most important skill that any person whether they're in sales or not can learn uh, both from a revenue generation point um, but also from an independence point of view you know I think when you can sell you don't need any other skills you don't need to be able to make things you don't need to be able to build things you don't even need access to funds necessarily um, um, you buy a widget on credit, you sell it for more than you paid for it, and, and you're set. So I think um, whether you're using selling to negotiate a pay raise or to negotiate with your kids or to get a date or to um, get a better lease on your apartment or to uh, make bank, I think it's probably one of the most independence um uh, granting and enhancing skills that any of us should learn. And I've, I've been a student of it for 20 years now at least. Wow, so 20 years. So in terms of um, businesses you've run, have they all been related to sales? Or I know you've written a book about sales. Yeah. Funnel. Go ahead. Sure. So um, the the first time I really got into selling was when I was a kid. And I, I know a lot of people have the apple cart or car washing story, door-to-door, neighborhood, um, football card trading yep. stories. Mine was slightly different. I was a street performer. And I realized that my dad wasn't overly keen on giving me an allowance. We came from a very modest background. My dad was a, a priest. And, um, you know, they get a free house, but not much cash. And, and so I was in, interested in what money could do for me in terms of being able to jump on trains and go and visit friends and stuff like that. And I realized that I had this skill which people would pay for, which was juggling. And so I started juggling in the street. And a couple of lessons I learned there were that if you ask for money, you can double your income. Um, instead of just leaving a hat on the floor, you say, hey, if you've enjoyed the show, would you like to make a small donation? And, and people would. So that was my first foray. I then fibbed about my age to get a job in a call center, which was fairly miserable, but taught me some skills around discipline and things like that. And then, and then through various forays into bar work, which I adored, I ended up in a timeshare company in Malta in the Mediterranean, selling um, very expensive uh, holiday ownership packages to tourists who had no intention of waking up in the morning and buying holiday ownership packages. And that was my first 
introduction to the psychology of selling. So we'd walk people in through the door. Very often they didn't know exactly what they were coming in for. They were, we called them ups or unqualified prospects. And our duty was to educate them, inform them, get to know them, build rapport with them, present them with an opportunity. And roughly 12% of the time across the board, year in, year out, people would make a sizable investment. And that was fascinating to me that if you stuck to the numbers and you stuck to the script and you stuck to the presentation, then you could earn a living from doing that. But there were, I, I only stayed doing it for a year because it wasn't the kind of product I'd be interested in selling a family member. So there was some integrity issues there. But word got around that I was good at selling and, and a guy in Brussels called me up and said, would you like to come and work in my recruitment company? So I got into corporate sales, which was interesting and again, discipline based. There was a direct correlation between the number of telephone calls and meeting, uh, telephone calls I made and meetings I attended and the amount of money that could be earned for the company at the end of the month. And of course, the company earned a lot more money than me. So I decided I wanted to start my own recruitment company, which I did. I started a recruitment company and we did very well. We we had some very impressive gross revenue figures, um, seven, seven figures in the first year, double that in the second year. And Unfortunately, it wasn't quite right for me, it appeared. My relationship with my business partner was fractious and I wasn't a comfortable manager and I didn't have the skills needed to run an office as well as sell. So I walked away at the end of year three divested myself of my 50% of the business and decided that I wanted to teach other people how to sell. I'd been attending breakfast networking meetings in my role as business owner and, and met a ton of coaches, business coaches, management consultants, life coaches, and some of them were piss poor, uh, Yara, but still earning a living. And I thought, well, if you know, I, if I can monetize my knowledge and my ability, because I always loved training up my sales staff. I loved that. And I loved selling the thing. I thought if I combine the two, then there might be a living for me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to hit the market cold. I didn't want to wing it, didn't want to make it up. So I bought a license to teach the Book Yourself Solid system off a guy called Michael Port, who wrote the book Book Yourself Solid and now runs Heroic Public Speaking. And he had a a school of coach training called the Book Yourself Solid School of Coach Training. So I took it very seriously and uh, ran with it, really impressed Michael to the point where I became the head of the Book Yourself Solid School of Coach Training. Uh, He became my business partner and I, I ended up running Book Yourself Solid worldwide for six or seven years. So training other coaches, do what I do. Meanwhile, simultaneously speaking and teaching and working with my own clients. And that led me to where I am today. So we set up Heroic Public Speaking, which is a public speaking training company. And about 18 months ago, maybe a bit longer, two years ago, I said, Michael, it's been, a, it's been an absolute ride. I feel my apprenticeship here has finished. And he said, don't go. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I must. And it was a teary, it was a teary farewell. And we remain on excellent terms. He's my, my youngest, son's, youngest son's godfather. And... Uh, I still do some consulting work for him on on marketing for his various companies. And now I, I, as you said, I travel the world. I teach people how to sell. I work almost exclusively with business owners of micro businesses. So people who have got their chops and they're perhaps doing 150 to 200K a year on their own or with a partner and looking to grow from that. Well, you've given me the whole story in, in uh, eight minutes there, Matthew, so I think we can end the interview now. <laughs> um, I'm so, I realized I've talking for a long time. My, my alarm uh, was going off saying, shut up, Kimberly, shut no, no, up. No, that's fine. I didn't want to stop you, but uh, normally I, I kind of interject with the storytelling a little bit there with the life story because I love to pick, pick apart that, but I, I'm still going to do that. Um, and I would also like to spend a bit of time talking about how to sell because I know there'll be uh, people listening into this who are one you know what what are some of the basics of at least you know getting better at selling certainly since they're all online marketers listening to this but before we do that I'd love to ask you a few more questions about that growing up story of yours because there's a few things that grab me um, you said well first of all you you left um, to go to Malta were you and uh, was that when you were 18 I was going by some of your biographical information so you left quite young from the UK is that right sure so I'm 37 today. Uh, when I was 18, I left the UK and I went to Malaysia and worked in a private school over there, which actually was probably the first time I realized that it's miserable to not have money when everybody around you does. So I was working teaching French and English to some of uh, the wealthiest kids in Southeast Asia who were categorically disinterested in learning French. But uh, at the weekends, they'd jump into their Ferraris and Lamborghinis and go hit the nightclubs of Kuala Lumpur. And I would be having noodles and getting on the bus if I was lucky. So after that, I uh, wanted to go back to Italy 
So I went to Italy and I worked in a um, in a theatre troupe for probably six to nine months or thereabouts, touring, teaching English through the medium of theatre. And then about the age of 19, went to Brussels, did some bar work, met a girl, a Maltese girl. And that's how I ended up in Malta at around 22 years old. Mm, okay. So when you were growing up in the UK, did, I'm guessing by the, the different choices you've made here in the juggling career and so forth, you, you didn't see yourself following that. I'm going to graduate from high school and I'm going to you know enroll in a, a marketing degree at university or an economics degree or an engineering degree get a normal corporate job did that ever cross your mind like did you have a vision for your future back then i, I knew that I, I tried to leave high school when i was 16 and my parents who'd always been very supportive of all of my choices they didn't categorize that's the maximum legal age of, of um, uh, sorry that's the earliest you can leave school uh, full-time education in the uk and i tried to leave and i remember sitting at home for a week I said I was going to travel the world and work in bars. I think I was just desperate. I had itchy feet and I was desperate to leave and desperate to move. And they managed to talk me out. My teachers got involved and they said, look, you're a bright kid. You should do your A-levels. Otherwise, you're screwed. And I said, well, if I'm going to commit to it, I'm going to commit fully. So I had a fantastic time at high school, age 17 and 18, studied languages and literature and did a ton of theater. And knew I wasn't going back into education at, at 18. I, I didn't want to do it. I got great grades and uh, traveled, you know, went back into, uh, went to Malaysia, ended up in an educational institution, <laughs> yeah. uh, funnily enough, but, but, but it was in an exotic location. And I applied for university and asked for a stay. You can have gap years in the UK, very common, and postponing um, enrollment is also very common. So I applied to a ton of universities, got accepted at all of them except the only one that interviewed me so i applied to i applied to six universities cambridge interviewed me said no uh, and all the other five who didn't interview me offered me a place and so i accepted a place at uh, the university of london to do a degree in french and italian and asked them again for a postponement and they went to brussels and started to taste freedom and i asked for another postponement and they said you're not really serious are you i said no i don't think so but it took me a few more years then. So I, I was applying for jobs in Brussels. Uh, and in Brussels, which is the center of the European Union administratively and, and legally, there's a ton of super educated people there with kind of three master's degrees, all applying for the same jobs. And I was getting rebuffed. Uh, every time I saw an interesting job, I, they said, but you don't have a degree. And I said, well, this, this is, you know, something's got to change. So I did eventually enroll through necessity, I'd say, through keeping my options open at the London School of Economics, who have a distance learning program. And I did a three-year degree in politics and international relations by correspondence, which I was very glad to get. You know, I haven't used it since, but I was, like, <laughs> I was very glad to get had the, had the options open to me at that stage. But no, I think, I, I, I think it, it was always quite clear that at least to my parents, they'd tell you that they were trailblazing is a horrible word. But you know what I mean? I wasn't keen to to do it the same way as everybody else was doing it. And, and to this day, I stand by those decisions. Did you end up getting work in Belgium? Yeah, I did. Um, well, the, the recruitment company, first of all, but also um, I did a, a job at the European institutions for a little while. Uh, it was before my degree was granted, so I got a I got a life I got a lifetime contract, which I actually still have. I'm on year fifteen, I think, of unpaid leave. Um, the enrollment process takes about two. The interview process takes about two years, but I got recruited to do a low level administrative job at the European institutions, and it sucked my will to live. And when I'd finished the probation period, nine months in, they said, "What do you want to?" do um now you can do anything i said how much unpaid leave can i have <laughs> they said pretty much as much as you like i said we'll see you i'm off i went straight back to selling recruitment services wow so you still have like a plan b there if you ever need it huh? <laughs> yeah i figure that if you know god forbid i should ever be in some kind of horrible accident and i lose my physical and mental capacities then i can still go and shuffle paper at the european commission so where does and forgive me if you can't talk about this but where does the british official secrets act come into the story right so this is on my amazon bio and i'd actually forgotten <laughs> about it since uh, since you mentioned it to me yarrow so when i was in year two of my recruitment company ownership i realized that i was quite unhappy it was making me unwell i had staff who looked up to me and i think i respected but i wasn't really respecting myself i was working 15 16 hours a day including the weekends and it was 
it was taking its toll on me. Like I said, bad, not a very good relationship with my business partner. And I started to journal or write as an outlet. And I wrote a blog. It was called How to Get a Grip. And it was basically advice that I needed to hear to myself. It included, you know, lots of swear words, drill sergeant style, get out of bed, stop feeling sorry for yourself, don't be wet. And... I got a publishing contract off the back of it, just out of the blues. So it went viral. I think it was, I can't remember which website featured it, but it, you know, I, I was getting kind of 50,000 views a day at one point and wasn't monetized, but uh, a publisher did say, listen, we think we could turn this into a book. And I said, that would be great. So uh, a book was published called How to Get a Grip, which is a personal development book. And it sold really well in the UK and continues to. It was very British though, never, never really made it overseas, including the US. But that was where uh, I wrote my Amazon bio kind of six years ago and said the most interesting thing that's happened to me can't be spoken about on account of the British Official Secrets Act. So um, I still can't talk about it, but there was a recruitment process um, which which was in central London for a you know, government organization in England, which, which looks after the UK's interests abroad. And I went through various steps in the recruitment process and was ultimately disqualified because I wasn't entirely truthful in my application. And uh, I said, well, I thought this would be an asset for a spy <laughs> i got this far right <laughs> and they said they said well yeah we understand but we've got your number now thanks very much kimberly and that was it that was the end of the story but it was fascinating it was a fascinating process and and, and the not entirely truthful application was the bit where you had to have lived in the uk for the majority of the previous 10 years oh. and I hadn't. I'd been abroad, but I told them, look, I've been working for the European institutions and they, you know, multiple people told me that's fine. The background checking guy said, that's fine. You know, we can we can go to Brussels and interview your friends there to do your background checks. But then the final step, um, apparently the the Uber recruiter disagreed with the previous assessments. So unfortunately, I was disqualified, which is a good thing as well, because, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you today, I suspect. Well, yeah, not in this capacity anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> We've been meeting at a bar in the Ukraine and exchanging yes. uh, envelopes inside <laughs> newspapers. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and this is also kind of funny. Um, in your Amazon profile, right next to the line where you do talk about that you can't uh, speak about your something in your history because of the British Official Secrets Act, right next to that is a black and white photograph of you looking pretty grim on, I think, a Harley Davidson with a big floppy hat. And it it does look like you're kind of like an undercover spy, but, you know, maybe in the punk <laughs> or something. So can you, and you know, if you want to check this out, just go check out Matthew Kimberly's bio on Amazon.com. But I just thought it's a wonderful combination yeah. of elements you've got on this page. <laughs> so, so the more I talk about my background, I think I've probably got suffering from some kind of um, entrepreneurial ADD or similar, because another thing that I did before I ended up working in timeshare in Malta was I decided I wanted to be a graphic designer because I was competent with Photoshop. So what you actually see there is a photo of my face superimposed onto either James Dean or Marlon Brando's <laughs> publicity, publicity image. So it was a pretty good job. It fooled you, right? But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah it, wasn't, it wasn't me. And I do use that image from time to time to demonstrate. Uh, in my keynote, for example, if I talk about my timeshare years, that's how we felt. We felt like we were kings of the world. Our training videos were Boiler Room and Glen Gary, Glen Ross and uh, Monday nights, which were our nights off. We were encouraged to go to strip clubs and take drugs and live large and basically um, develop expensive habits so that we'd be dependent upon our expensive paychecks wow. um, that came in every month. Yeah. It was a horribly unhealthy environment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so many places to go here, Matthew. You have quite a diverse background. Um, can we talk? This is already the most interesting interview I've ever given about myself, so thank you. <laughs> I'm enjoying it too. Um, <laughs> when did you sort of realize because it sounds to me that a lot of these stories resolve around you discovering what you don't like uh in terms of you know you don't like selling this timeshare you you um you didn't really want to study well you did but you didn't and then you did but you didn't end up getting the job that you thought it would lead to so there's a lot of kind of like false starts and jumping around not that you're you know it doesn't sound like it, you were super unhappy for most of the time sure there were moments where you didn't like the work you were doing but when did it switch to you sort of really feeling like okay now i've found my place and i could see myself not only you know making good money here but also being happy in in this work sure well i think my lowest was and and i've been generally happy and, and 
you know, perhaps perhaps the European Commission was a drag, but I was young and it was a short period of time. But really, I was desperately, desperately unhappy when I was owning the recruitment company. And that was a shame because, you know, on paper, everything was fantastic. We did two and a half million in our second year um, in, in gross sales. And and in principle, should I should have been over the moon. I had a, a company car, an expense account, but I was desperately, desperately unhappy at that point. And that was really the... The culmination of a of a series of fun adventures, frankly, you know, I, tell, I think well, no, the ones I've described to you, you know, oh. the fun adventures, okay. the, the Malaysia, Italy, Belgium, working in bars late at night, and 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 running around Malta, and uh, I even did a couple of ski seasons, and all of these things, you know, a series of short term fun activities, and I think the rule was always for me, if it stops being fun over a long period of time then I shouldn't be doing it because life's too short. And and I saw that recruitment or owning the recruitment company, and I, I was too immature to realize there was another way of doing it. I could have hired a general manager. I could have been stronger in, in putting my foot down. I could have insisted on having a day off. There are many, many ways that I could have managed it better. Do you, do you, but there came the moment, I think, sorry, when I you, realized... Sorry, and we've got a slight go delay ahead. here, so my interrupting is a, is a bit odd. Um, I just before you sort of transition, I am kind of curious about this recruitment company. Do you just mind explaining what it did and what you you know how you developed it and what your role was in that company? Absolutely. So the model was was very standard, very straightforward. We were an IT contract recruitment company, and what we would do is we would service large organisations in Belgium who needed contract IT workers. So anything from first level help desk through to project manager, uh, mainly in banking, in technology and in the engineering sector. So Siemens was a client, Bank of New York was a client um, and, and various others. And they had two types of workers. One type was employees, and we never helped them find their employees, but we did help them find their contract workers. So back in the heyday, which was just slightly before my time, a, a decent project manager would be getting anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 euros a day. And they'd be typically working through an agency who would take between 20 and 25% of that. So that was our business model. We would lobby hard with the procurement managers, the purchasing managers, the IT managers, sometimes human resources, in order to represent, sorry, in order to find the people that they needed for the roles um, that they had in-house. So we'd be put on a distribution list, we'd get an email sometimes or a telephone call, depending on what our relationship with the client was like. And they say, right, we need a project manager for a nine month contract and we can afford a thousand euros a day. So we'd then go to our database, we'd go to our job sites like JobServe and Monster and Stepstone. And we say, we're looking for a project manager at 750 euros a day. And when we were, it was a no win, no fee basis. So we'd put forward, we'd interview people, we'd check their qualifications, pure recruitment job. If the client was satisfied that they were somebody who they could work with, it could be incredibly remunerative. The tricky part of that is cash flow. So although the rewards are great and it's recurring revenue and it's cumulative, you place two people in a job today, chances are they'll still be working in nine months' time. You place two people in a job tomorrow, it builds up. You get this beautiful curve of, of increased income. But with that comes cash flow management. So our IT contractors, the they weren't going to wait 60 days to get paid like we were. So we had to come up with hundreds of thousands of euros every month in order to pay them. So they'd submit their timesheets to us. We'd endeavor to pay them within five days, but our clients would pay 60 days or 60 days end a month or whatever they felt like paying. So there was a commercial finance element. So we needed to have relationships with the banks who we would sell the invoice to. It's called invoice factoring. So we'd assign the invoices to them. They would collect from our clients. They would advance us 80% of the value of the invoice as long as the client was insurable. And it became a, yeah, we had to, a CFO was was one of our first hires um, because, because that the ability to save us because we were paying interest on a daily basis depending on how much we needed and we need to calculate on a daily basis how much we needed and it was fun it was fun but you needed to have a good relationship with the bank which is where my business partner came in and there was it's a great business model but it's not for everybody unless you have access to funds you can't run that kind of business unless your contractors are prepared to wait which they're not because the big companies have access to funds does that answer your question yes and you tell me about your role in that and why it was so miserable <laughs> is it just because of your partner or no, he was a, he was a great mentor to me in many ways. I actually he was a, he was the um, he helped recruit me to work in a previous recruitment business where I learned the ropes. And then I realized that 
there was a lot of money to be made and you only live once so i should i should give it a shot so i i set up a recruitment company and then i made a play to take him with me as a partner and i also offered the opportunity to a couple of other uh, partners in that company who who turned it down but he came to join me and, and that was great because it would have been almost impossible without him i was the chief salesperson general manager office manager um, number one recruiter in the beginning. I was also a human resource manager. I wore all the hats and we started to hire, we hired a, a CFO wasn't our first hire, but it was one of our first hires. We hired a few young salespeople. I loved training them, teaching them the ropes, set them on the phone. Standards were, here's the script, here's what you need to know, here's what you need to do. You need to set up meetings for me and eventually for yourself. And you need to make 20 qualified telephone calls a day. So it was pick up the phone, who's in charge of recruitment? How can we become a supplier? And if you if you had 20 conversations like that every day, eventually it would lead to the money. So it was very straightforward. Um, I think I was miserable because I wasn't at all interested in IT engineering. And my entire day frequently was spent talking about uh, programming languages or project management methodologies day in, day out. And, and I was never going to feel comfortable with that. But it was still a part of my job. A big part of the stress came from uh, managing expectations. We had a fantastic first year, uh, 1.3, 1.4 million. And then we had to do better the next year. And then I felt that we had to do better the year after that. And I felt we were doing enough. And my business partner felt that we weren't. And he was the money man. Um, and, and although we were 50-50 partners, the balance of power was never equal. And I felt I traded one boss for another boss, even though that was the business. And he was very tough. And now we're great friends. I mean, we call each other, we chat. But it got to the stage where I, I felt that I could no longer serve him in the capacity that he expected of me. Um, and that was causing me a great deal of stress. So one day you said, that's it, I'm out. It wasn't a one-day decision. It was a it was a long decision. I made sure there was continuity, and the company is still doing very well with neither of us involved. So I divested to him. He um, we appointed. So I said I suggest that this guy, who was a recent hire, would be a great candidate to run the company. He agreed, uh, and eventually that guy uh, did a, a management buyout. And and so you know, no bridge is burnt. I don't think in in the long term, and 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 we we're, we're still good friends. But I forgot your question. Um, well, so yeah, it wasn't a one-day decision. It was a long-term decision, and I need. I made sure that you know I waited until I took a distribution um, to fund whatever came next, and and uh, I wasn't. I just had a kid at that point as well. My first son had been born, right. so I I didn't want to do anything rash, and I did research exactly what was coming next next, and that was one of the reasons I enrolled in the Book Yourself Solid School of Coach Training. So I wanted to hit the ground running. I didn't want to wing it. I didn't want to take. I didn't want to try to create a coaching methodology. Or uh, some intellectual property that resonated with the market, and take the risk that it didn't resonate with the market, with the market, or that it didn't work. So I bought, I enrolled in a school of coach training. I bought a license to teach something which was proven, and that really allowed me to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the first month was, was was profitable. There was there was no question that it was a good choice for me. Kind of four weeks in. Okay, so tell me a little bit because I sort of the question I asked originally here was about when you found the work that you enjoyed. And it, it sounds like you know none of these roles you had necessarily were 100% horrible. Like there was parts of them you, you did enjoy and then parts you didn't. So when it when you switched to Book Yourself Solid and began educating yourself in someone else's selling system, um, was that looking like, did that sort of, you know, I guess it's kind of hard to say in hindsight or maybe easier to say in hindsight, but did you see, sort of feel like, okay, this this is ticking more of the boxes of how I want to make a living, support my family, because I'm assuming you were thinking about that having first had your, your child then. Um, but also, you know, you're like the thing with you went from being an entrepreneur, sort of, like, well, certainly at the starting the company, to now looking to kind of become a teacher. Is that a coach? Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, I think that's true. And I tell you, I tell you what it was. All my, I had that feeling that the minute I started my training with Michael Port, and still to this day, you know, almost nine years later, the feeling was I'm the boss now. For the first time in my life, even when I was the owner of that recruitment company, I was a fifty percent owner, and I wasn't the financier. So this time, this this chapter of my life, and who knows what's around the corner? You know, maybe maybe something else will happen next week. But the, for the last decade, it's always felt the same that everything is within my control. Whether I'm coaching or teaching or speaking or writing or or, or traveling, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it because I can. I get to choose my clients. I get to choose my 
hours and I work quite hard. You know, my wife would say I could, I could cut back. You know, I don't, a lot of my clients are in the States and I'd like to talk to them at a reasonable time for them. So I certainly don't do a four hour work week, but for the first time ever, I think I've been the boss and that's been very powerful. I've also seen that other, you know, things are possible. You can say yes to as many things as you can say no to and make them happen. And I never felt I had the complete freedom of choice in any of my previous roles. And that's been very, very powerful for me. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's the ultimate goal for most of us is that, that freedom and control. So with the training you went through with Michael Port and then even uh, going forward beyond that, can you maybe take us through, I guess, how you learned really to craft the, the fine art of selling? Because I know you obviously had a lot of practical experience before becoming a teacher, speaker, coach, so and so forth, you know, leader in, in Michael Port's world as well. What... Um, like how, I'm trying to kind of grasp the, the awakening to these sales techniques that you, you learn. Like, was it purely through the study of them? Did you get to have case studies? How did it all come to be going forward? Well, since I think the first introduction to the study of selling was in timeshare. So I was 21, 22 years old, 22 years old when I started in timeshare. And we were encouraged to, you know, we were given books to read. The Closers by Ben Gay III and um, the other books like that were were recommended to us and, and bought for us. Every single morning, every morning we had 45 minutes to 60 minutes training from managers, in-house training every single day. So we'd start, we'd be in the office at nine, we'd have a 15 minute meeting and then it would be 45 minutes of training. And this was a great discipline. And I started to get really interested in all the literature around selling. And I kept reading that. Um, I moved into recruitment. We, you know, we were sent to training seminars. I kept reading. I built my library of, of sales books. And I haven't read them all. There are tens of thousands, but I've read, you know, a lot of them many times. And I was aware that there was a discipline to be learned and systems of doing things and things like handling objections. You could systematize handling objections. You could systematize rapport building. You know, don't you don't try to jump into bed with somebody as soon as you meet them. You you date first. And, and this was I realized that this didn't happen by accident, but people were careful and they thought about this and books by people like Ziegler uh, and, um, and and all the all the classic uh, writers were were very much a big part of my world and and so I I had systems in my recruitment company very very clear systems and when I joined the Book Yourself Solid School of Coach Training again it was a very clear system if you're not familiar with Michael Port's if any of your listeners are not familiar with with Michael Port's Book Yourself Solid it's a systematic approach to building a business and selling your stuff and it's a beautiful arrangement of concepts and ideas into a methodological modular rhythm that makes it easy to grasp, easy to understand and easy to apply. And I always felt with Book Yourself Solid that one of the parts that was perhaps missing is um, an in-depth. So Book Yourself Solid goes from deciding what you do, deciding what you offer, deciding who you serve, deciding what your personal brand identity is to uh, building trust and credibility to putting a, um, a sales cycle into place to having um, a keep in touch strategy, information products, perfect pricing, a module called Super Simple Selling and then we get to marketing with the idea being that marketing shouldn't be done until you've got a way of converting the leads that you attract. So too many people start with Instagram and don't have a way of turning their followers into customers. So the bit that was always a little bit lacking for me was how to close. And I'd, I'd received endless experience in closing because that, that was my professional history up until then, prospecting and closing. So people were asking me within the Book Yourself Solid world and, and further apart, so, uh, what actually, you know, I, I keep dropping the ball when it comes to actually making the sale. We got this super simple selling thing, which teaches me how to open the sale, but actually closing it is a bit tougher. So I ended up teaching it and teaching it more and teaching it more until I thought, well, listen, I, I know this stuff inside out. It's been decades now. Um, what are the components that I put into every single sales offer, whether that's an online launch or a sales letter or a sales conversation. And they developed into the principles of professional persuasion, which you saw uh, when I sold the Apple in London. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so it's kind of like a, an evolution, really, to, to be fair. You, you start in your early 20s all the way up to what you're doing in your 30s and still doing today. So maybe we could switch to a little bit of how-to training for, for the listeners um, who, who are maybe new to selling. I, I haven't got time to do a whole presentation or anything like that. But in, in your experience, what is sort of the number one area where people tend to go wrong with sales and what should they do instead? I think the number one if there was one piece of advice which is critical for everybody it's the element of control David Sandler is the author of a book called you can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar and it's one of the best sales books ever written as far as I'm concerned he's also the founder uh, deceased now but was the founder of the Sandler system, the Sandler Training Group, I think it was called, uh, which is a franchised um, selling training organization. And so he says, if if you don't have a system for selling, I'm paraphrasing, you'll forever be at the mercy of your prospect system for buying, which means the prospect and the seller, even though they may have similar outcomes in mind, they have different ways of getting there. The prospect will say, how much does it cost? And make a decision based on that. An effective buyer will look the prospect in the eye and sorry, an effective seller will look the prospect in the eye and say, this is the way that we do things around here. First, I'm going to show you X, then I'm going to show you Y, then we're going to go for all the stages could be different for each individual, then we're going to go for lunch, then I'm going to make your proposal if you qualify to be a customer, then you're going to take that proposal back to your organization, your board, and you're going to come back to me with an answer by Thursday. Is that something that you can commit to? Yes. No, it depends. What many prospects do when they go to me, I've got to get this right. I do it for a living. What many vendors and many sellers do when they go to meet a prospect right, is they their knees start knocking, their adrenaline starts, starts rushing, and they put their prospect on a pedestal. And they say, oh, Mr. Important Prospect, thank you so very much for seeing me. I know you're very busy. I promise not to take up too much of your time. And their hands are shaking. And they say, um, I, I, I I'm sure this is something that, that you, you may or may not be interested in today, but I just want to give you the opportunity to have a look at my, my prospectus. And the prospect goes, well, I've clearly got the control here. I have the authority. I have the upper hand. We're going to do things my way. Instead, we need to adopt the high paid consultant mindset or the doctor's mindset or the lawyer's mindset. If you walk into a doctor's office, the doctor doesn't say, thank you so much for choosing me. I'm so very grateful for your custom. I think it would be a great opportunity if we get to know each other. And can I take you for lunch? He says, what seems to be the problem? Drop your pants. <laughs> bend over. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and we respect the authority and we go to him. And it doesn't matter whether you're selling Mars bars or nuclear submarines unless you map out the journey. And ideally, we don't want to be saying drop your pants and bend over we want to be walking the prospect through our predefined well there we go exactly and no, <laughs> no certainly no judgment here <laughs> libertarian all the way uh, the you want to be walking your prospect by the hand consensually along your pipeline your predefined pipeline from the left hand side of the screen to the right hand side of the screen they're not going to go there of their own accord so you must control that and you control the follow-up and you control when they give you an answer and you um if they're going to say you know let me go away and think about it there must be parameters around how long they can think about it when they have to get back to you do you both agree what the next course of action is and do they understand so i think many of us underestimate our own value and when we do understand our own value we can walk in there like i train a recruitment company here in malta they're my only maltese com uh, client it's not a very big market i'm very happy to live in malta and not work too much but there is a recruitment company here and i go in and see them a couple of times a year and i train them on business development and one question that they are perpetually asked by their prospects is so why should we work with you so they attend a, a meeting with a prospect and the prospect goes so tell us what are your credentials why should we work with you the natural inclination of somebody with high levels of emotional intelligence is to please at that point and they start to do a dance and they dance to the prospect's tune and they start to um, use adjectives and say we will always put you first and um, you know we, we are deeply invested in our client success and blah 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 all of these things that you know we are big and we are strong and we are clever and, and all these things which anybody could claim and anybody could say I much prefer to flip it back and I say look if, if anyone asks you why should we work with you the only answer is I don't know 
that's what we're here to find out today. Uh, and and if, they, if, if the only credentials that you need if you're an established firm is the names of your existing clients in corporate, you know, if you can show them that, that, that their competitors are working with you, then that's all the cred- credential and credibility building that you need. You say, you know, why should we work with you? Well, I don't know. We're here to find out whether you should or not. But let me tell you, um, 750 of our current clients uh, choose us for the following reasons. Um, you lead with power instead of being the dog that will jump for the bone. And I think that makes the biggest difference. It's a combination of confidence and discipline. And I think the vast majority of my time is spent instilling discipline. Many salespeople think that they can improvise their way around solutions. They can use the gift of the gab. And it's just not true. If you look at your taking your prospect through the sales process, taking your prospect through the sales journey, if you look at that with the same level of discipline that you would have if you were stacking shelves or building a cabinet, you know, it's not optional to put that can of baked beans on the shelf. It has to go from the box to the shelf. And I think you know, asking for exclusivity or demanding a yes or a no answer or not or, or, or following up when you say you're going to follow up. None of these things are optional if you're in sales. You follow the discipline and the results will come. You've triggered a, a memory. I'm actually going through uh, Chet Holmes, um, the Ultimate Sales Machine book right now. You might be familiar with Fantastic it. Fantastic book. And he's constantly reinforcing the fact that you need to have the diehard discipline to follow through and do everything that he's recommending and that's actually the only trick to all this is just the follow through and actually doing everything that you know you have to do um what does he call it pig-headed determination yes that's the one pig-headed determination (laughs) over and and it's absolutely true there's two elements to selling there's i think all of us an analogy i use is the muscle the sales muscle we've all got it we're all born with it when we're kids we scream and cry until we get what we want and then it gets conditioned out of us by niceness which is not a bad thing for society at large uh, but at large but there's two elements to building any muscle one of them is activity and the other one is form so activity means you've got to do the reps you've got to do the push-ups you've got to do the squats and form prevents you from getting injured form has only once you've got basic form in place it only has very 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 tiny effects on the end result if you're a top performer but if you're if you're not a top performer if you're if you're someone who wants to functionally perform then you cannot get ripped whether it's your biceps your triceps or your sales muscle if you're not doing the reps and many many clients private clients come to me and they say i haven't made a sale in 60 days i says okay how many sales offers have you made in 60 days and they say well none and i say well i see a correlation here (laughs) go out and have 100 sales conversations with strangers and see what happens and it depending on what they're selling they could probably make one sale to a stranger in a shopping mall and that means they've got a one percent conversion rate which is great then we work on the form we choose the target market we work on the close we work on the open we work on the feature and the benefits and all the bits and pieces um, and we improve our closing rate uh, but without activity it's all theory so true i think it's a golden rule for everything really in life gotta do can we right can we uh, just turn this everything you're talking about here and how it applies to strictly online marketing since uh, you know a good chunk of my audience are predominantly selling entirely through the internet so how does this philosophy Apply to the internet and become practical in the internet since there's a lot of things you can't do face to face, so to speak. Absolutely. And I get, I would say, a good 70% of my clients come online, come through an online channel. Uh, although my delivery is is often uh, using my mouth, uh, many, many of my clients come, come through online channels. So I think you've still got to take your clients through the same process. You've still got to take your prospects through the process. And what most of your listeners will know this as uh, is the sales funnel. So your qualifying prospects, first of all, which is the first step in the professional persuasion sequence by asking them to self-identify someone who's interested in that ebook or that tripwire offer or that opt-in or that cheat sheet or that webinar, you're qualifying them and you're saying, uh, is this you? You know, do you want more clients? Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to be more attractive to the opposite sex? If yes, come and find out about me. And look, I'm not a weirdo. So we're going to spend a little bit of time rapport building, building connection. Uh, I think a lot of people jump into one of the problems, a lot of people online, they kind of jump into the credibility stage, which is I made $60 million while sitting on the beach in the Bahamas and you can do the same, which isn't bad. You know, it kind of works, but I think the more finesse way is to build connection first. And the way that we build connection is by showing that we understand the world 
of the prospect. Uh, and sometimes this can be by by illustrating or demonstrating what their issues, what their problems, what their desires might be. Sometimes it's by sharing photos of our kids and saying, look, I'm just like you. I'm not a weirdo. Sometimes it's by demonstrating people that we have in common, you know, third party endorsements, stuff like that. So um, we, we're doing all of this, hopefully to get them because ultimately people will buy emotionally and uh, two types of purchase, the logical and the emotional. Emotional tends to win. We'll make an illogical purchase emotionally, um, but, but it's rare for us to make a, uh, an, an unemotional purchase logically or is, it, or is it less common. So we've got to build that emotional rapport. And then we say, look, this is what's going to happen. Now you're in my world. I'm going to take you by the hand. And I'm going to lead you through this process, which is the control step. And very often, a lot of your, a lot of your guys, a lot of your listeners will have this mapped out in their sales funnels and in their sales processes. Um, we identify the problem, we give them a solution, and then we have as much fun with the benefits as possible. So for a long time in 2013, I wrote a daily email to my list. And it was styled on the Ben Settle email a day, you know, 500 words, um, fun email, segue offer every single day, 365 days, or I think I, I did 362 or something like that. Um, my my crowd would get an email from me, and I just explored all of the individual, all the different benefits of joining my more clients mastermind using that email sequence, using that email exercise, and I was amazed. Uh, I would on day 272, I talked about how I had been teaching people who were professional charity fundraisers how to use the principles of persuasion to raise more money for charity. And I said, so if you join my more clients mastermind, you will also learn how to raise money for funds that matter to you, how to raise funds for organizations that matter for you. And off that one email alone, three people who'd been on my list who'd never corresponded with me before said, it took me 262 emails, but that was the benefit I saw of joining your More Clients Mastermind. Up until then, I didn't realize why it was for me. So I think benefits can be explored at great depth over many years and thousands of bullet points. I don't know about you, uh, Yara, but whenever I write a sales page, I can spend a day or two bullet pointing benefits. Mm. Like, you know, what happens if you can get more clients? Well, your, your sex life will improve. Well, how? Well, let's work it out. You know, we can go, we can go down, we can correlation and, and, and direction and cause. Social proof is absolutely critical. Usual, so use, useful social proof. Anything you say about yourself is great. What other people say about you is, is more important. Scientific proof, logical proof, numerical proof, any kind of proof. Anything to say, don't take my word for it, because that puts you in a really confident position. If you can say, don't take my word for it, here are the case studies, here's what the doctors say, here's here's, uh, here's a testimonial from somebody just like you. And then I think I think we shouldn't be afraid to preempt the, the difficult objections. So we want people on side agreeing that you know, not having enough money isn't enough reason for not investing in this program. We want people to agree with us that the best time to lose weight is today, not tomorrow. And you and I will both agree, Mr. Prospect, that we've seen some you know, real failures uh, in the weight loss industry for people who say, I'll start tomorrow. Why? Because there is no tomorrow. You know that, and I know that, therefore let's continue. And what you've done is you've planted the seed in their mind that they're not going to be able to use that against you in the future, which will be it's tomorrow. Because they've already agreed. It's Cialdini's principle of consistency. They've, they, they've agreed that this is not an objection that they can use. So we must address the most difficult objections up front. Um, online and offline, many, many, many salespeople kind of hope that the same objections they get every single time won't come up this time, which is a fool's way of looking at things. Because if they come up every single time, of course they'll come up this time. So what do we do? We disarm rather than try to dodge. Um, bonus stacking, bonus loading, always do it, even if it's just a free box of chocolates. Doesn't matter. People will make uh, purchases because they like the look of the amenity kit or the glass of champagne or the free access to your X, Y, and Z. Um, and then and then be, be audacious with your risk reversal. You don't have to have a money-back guarantee, but I've seen in, in my experience, the longer the money-back guarantee, the less people are likely to take it. Done a program in the past where we offered a two-year money-back guarantee and there was a zero refund rate, possibly because people forgot that they you know, forgot that they could get their money back. I don't know, but um, there's there's no danger in standing behind your promises, particularly in an industry where your inventory costs are zero. You know, I think you're crazy not to offer people the opportunity. Like, it's also a great filter for the right people. You should never sell the guarantee as being the reason that they should do it, or you'll get serial refunders. 
But if you make it quite clear that you're the one assuming the risk and they're assuming none, or you could offer a results guarantee or you could offer a trial period. Why not test all of these things? Uh, one of my clients is an incredibly successful uh, business coach. Um, and he's been toy- he's been playing recently with a um, pay a deposit today and pay nothing for two months. Um, the business model for a mastermind program he has, very expensive mastermind. And 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 it's just going like gangbusters. People are spending future money. Um, he's assuming all the risk. He has to delight in the first two months um, or they're out. Um, and, and it just works phenomenally well. So I think you, if you can afford to be bold and and offer that kind of that kind of satisfaction guarantee, then your prospects will 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 thank you for it with their cash. Scarcity and urgency always work. If you can use them with integrity, you must. If you can't use them with integrity, there's a special place in hell for you. Um, you know, cart closes tomorrow. Cart closes tomorrow. Cart closes tomorrow. Reopen the cart. Yeah, I, I, I don't like that at all. Um, but and and then and then close and be firm and don't be afraid to say no to business. It doesn't apply so much if you've got a sales page for a $99 offer. Uh, but if you are selling maybe consulting services or, or high value services online, don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry, but this offer is off the table because otherwise you'll be chasing your tail for a deal that will never come through. One more sales question. There are my thoughts. Based yeah. upon <laughs> principles of professional persuasion. There's, there's a lot there. And that actually is leading me to this next question. So I know if you're like me and most of the listeners and probably yourself over the years too, you keep coming across so many of these kind of ideas that you you know, you know jot down and you know, oh, if I just added another bonus, if I just played a bit more with split testing, you know, different things here, um, you know, working in, like doing some research to, to find some data, to back up what I'm doing, to get some more case studies, get some more tests testimonials, you know, all these techniques that are proven, we, we know they work because everyone uses them, um, but there's too many of them. They're all, it's overwhelming and you could spend your entire life doing nothing but split testing and adding and subtracting these kind of concepts to your, your marketing funnel. If if there's an, a feeling of overwhelm, what would you recommend people start with? Is there like an 80-20 rule of uh, persuasion techniques, the number one thing to do first if you're just getting started with this? If yeah, I mean, f- firstly, you've got to you've got to make sure that you're actually providing a solution to an issue in the marketplace, whether that's a problem that you're solving or a delight that you are endowing upon your prospect, upon your client. That must exist. You know, if you have to educate the market on why they need your thing, I think you're on a starter for nothing. That requires far more investment in marketing and education and stuff like that. If you've got genuine solution to a recognized problem, then your it's if if you don't you're screwed you know if you don't you're screwed but if you do that's great the other thing that i would work on more than anything is voice and the connection element if you if you've got any commerce store that's selling bangles that's that's one thing but if you're selling any kind of services you know is there a reason that frank kern is um frank kern and i think so is probably his magnetism also great marketing chops uh, knows exactly what he's doing um incredibly intelligent and a fantastic copywriter but also you know i i buy from frank kern because i love the guy why because he's amenable because he's personal because he's got a voice i spend more on tips i tip the bartender more when i like them more um i have made business decisions with regards to my ongoing education, with regards to the platforms I'm using, with regards to the service provider that I'm using, because I like them. And I think if you can focus on that connection element, how can you become amenable? How can you become a voice? How can you connect with people in a stronger way? Then the marketplace will be a lot more forgiving. That's what I think. And, and to do that, is that just practice? Just practice writing, practice speaking, practice everything with to do with your voice? Yeah, I think it's about developing the voice as well. Yeah, who are you? What do you stand for? And importantly, what do you stand against? If, in the words of Michael Porton and, and probably many, many others, if you try to please everybody, you'll end up pleasing nobody. If you are vanilla, you'll attract vanilla clients. If you are, if you stand for something strongly or you stand against something strongly, people will get emotionally engaged with you. If you read like an instruction manual, people won't get emotionally engaged with you. And, you know, if you, if, if you were to start Yarrow, and you would never start this, but I want to give a really extreme example. If you were to start a podcast called, if somebody were to start a podcast called Online Marketing for Neo Nazis, (laughs) 
they would get all of yeah exactly right they would get all of the neo-nazi online marketing business no question people who uh, associate who have a strong sense of identity or if you know online marketing for buddhists or whatever it is people who have whose whose identity is so deeply entwined with that um set of ideals or that that set of political beliefs they will gravitate towards the person even if they're a substandard provider in terms of education or um information or practical application of their staff they're right people they're buddhists they're neo-nazis will naturally flock to them so because they've got a very good reason to which is which is a sense of identity yes polarization is a good marketing technique huh? <laughs> um you can't be you can't be magnetic unless you're repelling you know right, mag- right. magnets have a north and a south mm-hmm. yeah um, i never think of the idea of mag- each magnetism side. is polarization it's the two sides so it is absolutely is yeah Okay, uh, as we kind of move towards the end of the interview here, Matthew, uh, I, I am curious, what, what's the day in the life of Matthew Kimberly like now, and why have you decided to kind of, I won't call this the end point, but why have you reached this current point, given all the different types of careers and things you've done in the past? Why does this right today suit you? But of course, what is it first? Well, how do you live today? Okay, so if I'm not traveling, which I am frequently, so I just got back from a 10-day trip, which saw me go to New York to speak at an event hosted by a guy called Todd Herman, who's a, a brilliant performance coach, created the 90-day year. He has a, um, a program, a mastermind program. He invited me to go and talk to his people in New York a week ago last Saturday. So I flew out there, minus 15 degrees, miserable, miserable. Spoke for Todd's event, meant to fly back, plane was cancelled, um, got to London, gave a one-day seminar to a group of about 50 or 60 uh, business, small business owners, startup business owners in London. As a result of that, signed up three or four, three definitely, possibly four uh, clients for my uh, advisory board mastermind. Um, then met some private clients in London and then came home. And that's pretty typical. I might spend, might spend 10, days, 10 days a month on the road, speaking at events, uh, meeting with clients, things like that. When I'm here, I will be woken by my kids. I've got two kids, four-year-old and eight-year-old. They'll wake me up between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. And we'll put them on the bus at seven in the morning. I'll then walk the dog for an hour, have a couple of coffees, um, go home and slowly stroll to the office. I came into the office at 10 o'clock this morning because we were talking. That's pretty much the earliest I'd get in, typically about 11. I sit down, I do a couple of hours work, tend to emails, admin, stuff like that. Spot a lunch, calls in the afternoon with clients and then uh, walk the dog, have a beer, go to bed. I, domestic bliss <laughs> domestic bliss is my life you know i have an office outside of the home um and i enjoy that because i get to walk it's only a five minute walk from home along the seafront um I tend not to work weekends at all anymore which is great and who knows if this is the final iteration i'm almost 100 percent certain it isn't one thing that i'm exploring arrow which your guys will be your i stop saying your guys your your guys and gals your listeners will will know a lot more about than me is e-commerce this year mm. so i'm looking to add although i have products i have my school for selling i have my single malt mastermind i have my professional persuasion these products exist i'm interested in they're, they're all they involve me so what i'm looking forward to doing this year is using my marketing and copywriting chops to develop an e-commerce brand where nobody even knows i'm involved with that i'm excited about that for a couple of reasons one i think it'll be a, a good neutral um, and objective test of my skills mm. and the second part is you know, if I get sick, I think I'm afraid that nine months a year from now, my family might run out of money. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be directly involved in in business for the rest of my life. So, so I've got a couple of projects on. But today, I love it. What I've done over the last few years here is I've really tightened my red velvet rope. And this is a policy from Book Yourself Solid, which is an analogy. It's it's for the red velvet rope outside your nightclub. You know, the bouncer stands on the door. They decide who can come in in order to ensure the experience for everybody on the inside. Is there a right balance of guys and girls do they look like they have enough money to spend are they going to cause trouble or are they going to be fun um these kind of questions so in your business and in your life frankly you should also apply this red velvet rope policy you decide who you let into your life you decide who you let into your business and i've been tightening that and tightening that and i can honestly say although i have great days and, and less great days every single one of my clients today that i have to speak to that i get to speak to is a rock star and that's deliberate 
Um, there isn't any time. I've got a lot of products now. I don't know every single. I haven't met every single one of my of my customers, but the clients who I get to spend time with, it's just a pleasure. And and that's been through deliberate filtration of um, energy and capability and personality. Mm. It's a delight. Sounds like a good mix. I, I love the the e-commerce coming into the mix too that's in testing your own skills that's cool because then you can go and take what you learn and use it as case studies to you know to your consulting business your speaking business so that's cool um you're not going to be doing e-commerce to sell apples are you i'm afraid that's that's that market is too competitive even for me (laughs) okay because you're good at selling apples so i just thought maybe you know Maybe not so many margins it's in true. that kind of field, but um, okay, Matthew. Uh, well, if you're selling them for 50, 50 to hundred bucks, right? Yeah. Well, you, you, if anyone can do it, you can. <laughs> so, gold encrusted <laughs> apples are just very well psychologically positioned apples. Um, Matthew, for people who want to find out more about what you do, where should they go? Go to matthewkimberly.com, and I think I spell. I think I own every every misspelling of that name, uh, which redirects to matthewkimberly.com. That's that's Kimberly L E Y at the end. And really, most of my best work, most of my best writing, goes out by email. I don't blog very frequently, and I don't um, have much of a social media presence. But I do quite a lot by email. So I'd I'd love to have any of your listeners as my pen pals. Mm. Uh, just one question that you triggered there is most of your personal business growth then does it come primarily from speaking or primarily from email marketing or a bit of both last year 2017 was mainly jvs so uh joint venture webinars mainly last year um this year i'm doubling down on advertising um and prior to then it has been speaking and writing so blogging blogging and writing and and i i think you know podcasting certainly is i will always say yes not not to cheapen our experience yeah but you know I, i just can't see the downside to having a chat with somebody for an hour about about things i love that other people will get to listen to so certainly there have been many many score podcast interviews um in previous years as well uh so this is the first year i'm going uh, this is the first year i'm doubling down on advertising and last year was really really good for me on jv jv webinars that sounds yeah like a very common thread people talking about jv webinars but i think um i'm kind of curious because you do so much speaking and how much that actually gets you new customers versus the speaking itself is the income stream like is it both for you i'm guessing it is both and it is now it wasn't always like that um certainly started to get paid recently in the last three years or so but could i drop it as a lead gen or marketing opportunity probably Mm. probably could drop it as a you know as as a lead gen activity without it having an effect on my business but I adore it, uh, and I wouldn't want to drop it. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, entertainer in you still, huh? The juggler is, is still out Absolutely. There. <laughs> the juggler, that's right. <laughs> uh, okay, well, Matthew, thank you for sharing the whole gamut of this story, the, the British Secret Service or the, the juggling, the recruitment officer, the English teacher, the, now the sales teacher. So you've had a, quite a range of careers there, but uh, it sounds like you found the, the sweet spot of what you're doing now. So, uh, But thank you for telling the whole story. I find that very entertaining and interesting, as well as the sales techniques. That's thank, you for having the pa- thank, you for having, thank you for having the patience to listen to me. Uh. <laughs> no problem, Matthew. Okay, well, um, thank you, Matthew, and thank you, everyone for listening in Uh, this is Yara Stark from the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast we'll talk to you very soon hey this is Yaro if you enjoyed this episode of the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast and you'd like to receive an email every time we release a brand new interview as well as receive a series of the very best EJ podcast interviews from the archives then I recommend you go straight away to Interviews Club that's Interviews Club Enter your email address there and then you'll be signed up to receive all the latest podcast episodes as soon as they're released. You'll get an email direct to your inbox. That's interviewsclub.com. 